first reading comes from Genesis 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The second reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Jerusalem, home of three great religions, the so-called city of peace. In the blistering heat of July 15th, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up here to one of Islam's most sacred sites and committed one of the great atrocities of Christian history. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women, and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths. The rest they butchered. The carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 meters that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth had died on a Roman cross, having called his followers to love their enemies. I hardly know what to say. And still, I hardly know what to say. And what made this scene particularly difficult to film was that uh, my uh, minder, my guide up in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third most holy site in Islam, was uh, standing right in front of me to the side of uh, camera as I delivered these lines. She's a Jerusalem Muslim. Uh, it was her forebears, religiously speaking anyway, who were slaughtered by Christians in the great Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, massacre. And I had to deliver these lines about what the Christians did to Muslims on that awful day. And, and she's standing you know, just a couple of feet to the left of camera. 
And by the time I got my lines right, um, maybe three or four times saying it, uh, she had a tear in her eye. And I thought, wow, this event, this Christian bad behaviour has caused a 900-year-old scar, at least amongst Jerusalem Muslims. And, um, you know, as we were packing up the gear, I, I went over to her and I, I said sorry. Now, I know that makes no sense. Like, logically speaking, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I like to think I wouldn't have done it. But it just felt like the right thing. And she was beautiful in response, actually. Um, she said, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's fine. But I could tell it was far from fine. I tell you that um, not you know, to promote the movie uh, out now, um, but because I'm going to say some very positive things today about the church as Jesus intended it. And I don't want to leave the impression that I think the church has always just been beautiful and saintly. I spent three years making this documentary where I looked into the darkness of Christian history. And I genuinely believe that the so-called communion of saints has sometimes been a pack of bullies. The holy church, a gang of thieves. So I just want to make that clear before I talk about the beautiful community Jesus proposed and which the Apostles' Creed um, describes. And in some ways, it's because I know what the ideal was, the ideal Jesus taught, that, that makes the actual history so uh, disappointing. We are working our way through the 83 words all Christians agree on. Uh, 83 words in the original language anyway. Uh, it's a few more in the English, but... Either way, across the denominations, throughout history, Christians have said, yeah, we, we agree on the content of these three stanzas. And in week one, we looked at the reality of God in stanza one. Uh, week two, we saw the history of Jesus in stanza two. And this week, the life of the Spirit, which is the content of the third stanza. A key part of that life of the Spirit, is this community that Jesus founded. What the Creed calls the Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints. But before we get to that community, as Jesus described it, I want to deal with the obvious and awkward topic that is clear in the Creed, the topic of the Trinity. The Trinity. The third stanza begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but that is clearly a repetition of uh, the opening line of the first two stanzas. I believe in God the Father, and then it's and in Jesus Christ, his only son, and now it's repeated, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the importance of noting the way the creed was designed is to see that the Spirit is not just an item of belief. The Spirit is not just another doctrine. 
According to the framers of the Apostles' Creed, reflecting the teaching of the New Testament, the Spirit is God just as much as the Father and the Son. This is the doctrine of the triunity, the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, I realize this is deeply weird. You ask a Christian, is God three or is God one? And a Christian has the temerity to say, yes. In one of my favorite podcasts, um, Melvin Bragg, a uh, BBC broadcaster and atheist, described the Trinity as that muddle Christians got themselves into. And I think a lot of people feel that. Maybe some Christians feel that. And I accept that the Trinity uh, messes with our heads mathematically. Three, one, one, three. But without pretending I can resolve the mathematics, the Trinity also resolves a question that is profoundly Philosophical and personal at the same time. Here's the question. How can God be essentially and eternally loving if there was no other, no beloved in eternity to love or be loved by? If God is a monad, the philosophical word that just means a single unified entity, with no personhood, then God couldn't be loving, essentially, in God's very character, or eternally. You would have to say God became loving 200,000 years ago when he created Homo sapiens. And then, finally, he had someone to love and be loved by. But, of course, that doesn't really make sense. The Trinity answers this question, because it says God is essentially and eternally loving because God himself is three persons in love relationship. God, in his very nature, is a loving communion, a tri-unity, a trinity. Uh, I admit that I wish the mathematics of God were more straightforward. But I will sacrifice what I can imagine about the maths for an assurance that God is love any day of the week. And the Trinity tells me that God himself is eternally, essentially, Father, Son, and Spirit in an eternal communion of love. And it's out of this idea of eternal communion within God that Christianity gets its strident focus on human community. My second point. The creed goes on to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Um, This is the work of the Spirit. Uh, The way the creed is designed is the first stanza is all about the work of God the Father in creating, The second stanza is all about the Son 
in redeeming us and granting us amnesty. And this third stanza is all about what the spirit does. That's the way the creed is designed. And here's the thing. The heart of the spirit's work here and now is to take ordinary people from all parts of the world with all sorts of baggage and idiosyncrasies and form them into a communion, a community marked by love and unity. What the creed calls the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. Now, I know that they sound weird concepts, but they're not weird at all. Pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, The reference to the Holy Catholic Church is not a reference to our friends up the road who go to a church with Roman Catholic Church on the sign out the front. It isn't a reference to that. And, And our friends at the Roman Catholic Church will agree with me on this. This is not just Dixon's favorite Anglican interpretation. The word Catholic means universal, katoholos, according to the whole. And this word Catholic was deliberately inserted into the creed to make sure people didn't think it was a reference to just the Roman church or the Syrian church or the Ephesian church or the church in Milan. It's the universal church. It's the holy Kataholos church, according to the whole. And, you know, uh, this really messes with some people's heads. Historically, the Orthodox church, as in our friends in Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, they call themselves Catholics as well. But they don't mean Roman Catholics. And and did you know that mainline Protestants, uh, that's Presbyterians, uh, Uniting, Methodist, Anglican, they all call themselves Catholics as well. Those of you who know the prayer book, I mean the real prayer book, uh, you know, like the original 1662 Anglican prayer book, uh, will know that the Catholic Church is, is, is throughout the document. It's who we are if we are believers in, in Christ. And the Spirit's role is to create this great big community of followers of God. The expression communion of saints uh, there uh, is just the fellowship of all Christians, is just the fellowship of all Christians. Communion of saints doesn't mean uh, a kind of um, superhero collective of Christians. I, you hear the word saint and you think it must refer to you know, powerful Christians. But actually, saint is the typical word in the New Testament for a Christian. Now, that may all sound a bit technical, but it's important to realise that the Holy Spirit's role is to take disparate ordinary people from all around the world and bring them into a communion, into a church, into community, a community that reflects the love of the Trinity. I can't deny that Christians haven't always acted like this. Uh, Christians have fought amongst each other, yes. Christians have fought other faiths, yes. Uh, Christians have fought unbelievers, yes. Christians have been jerks. They've covered up their crimes, yes. And some of you uh, may bear the scars of Christian bad behaviour. But when this creed was put together, the Christian church was breathing 
fresh air into a Roman Empire that was suffocating under the weight of its own hierarchy, inequality, and violence. The church emerged in the ancient world as this unique entity where the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, men and women, people of all nations, actually met together in little communities like this. It was extraordinary. And ancient historians, secular ancient historians, will frequently point out that Christianity gave the Roman world, and then later the Western world, its view of human equality, of love as the principal ethic, of community being primary. And it's not just ancient history. Um, For my uh, podcast, I interviewed this man, Andrew Lee. Some of you may know him. He's the uh, Labour MP and the Shadow Minister for Charities. But before that, he was an academic who specialised in social capital. That is, the study of what makes society stick together what things break down society and what things build up society. He did his PhD at Harvard under Robert Putnam, who's the world authority on this social capital uh, discipline. And he is also an atheist, which is really interesting uh, because he actually thinks that churches are the backbone of human community in America and Australia. And he believes this on the basis of data, hard data, For example, and I quote him, among churchgoers, 25% also participated in a community service or civic association over the same period. By contrast, among non-churchgoers, just 12% participated in a community or civic association. That's a doubling effect. Regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in a voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Those who attend church regularly are more likely to say that they can count among their friends a business owner, a manual worker, or a welfare recipient. Few other institutions are as effective in fostering this bridging social capital between rich and poor. He goes on to say that actually um, blood donation rates are so high amongst churchgoers that the Red Cross could solve all its problems if more Australians went to church. And and I underline, he is an atheist. The data is overwhelming that despite the deserved bad press the church has received, it remains a breath of fresh air in our disparate society. Christians might not be much on their own, Uh, But somehow the spirit breathes the life of community into Christians so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And part of the reason uh, for this bond that Christians feel and extend to the non-believing world is contained in that next line of the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins. You might have thought these words should have gone in the second stanza. Because remember, the second stanza is all about Jesus' death and resurrection for our amnesty. Jesus took upon himself the judgment human beings deserve. 
so that we might be forgiven. And so why isn't forgiveness of sins up there? There are historical reasons why it's not in the second stanza, which if I had a longer time and this was more of a lecture, um, I would explain. But it makes beautiful sense here, nonetheless. Why? Because the idea of the forgiveness of sins is the ultimate leveller and therefore the ultimate basis of human community. Think of it this way. Think of all the other clubs and associations you could get involved with in society. Almost all of them, by default, apart from maybe families, are based on activities or things you can either be better or worse at, and therefore you're ranked. You think of sports clubs. You think of theatre companies. Think of the Qantas Club, when, when, you know, back in the day when we could fly. Ranking. But the basis of Christian community is the forgiveness of sins, which completely changes the nature of community. It means that no one has bragging rights over anyone else. Because the basis of our being together is that we are sinners who are forgiven. That there can be no, I'm better at being forgiven than you. How does that work? I mean, maybe Christians could argue, I've had more sins forgiven than you, you know, or I'm worse than you. I mean, it doesn't make sense. This is put beautifully by a man you may have never heard of, but he's quite a big deal in the UK. British intellectual atheist Francis Spufford, who a few years ago accidentally became a Christian, and, um, or an Anglican anyway, and uh, he w- explains in his beautiful book called Unapologetic that he began to notice that amongst his atheist London elite crowd, they were the most judgmental people he'd ever been part of. The way they would talk about religious people, the way they would talk about conservatives, they were so pharisaical, he thought. And it got him thinking about the judgmental church or the caricature of the judgmental church. And it dawned on him that the church, at least in theory, should never be judgmental and has the clue to human community right at the heart of it. Let me explain uh, in his own words what he saw. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the simple reason that there aren't any good people, not that can securely be designated as such. Christianity can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and to keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realise, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of it, as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves, far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. There are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cosy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. 
not all guilty of the same things or in the same way, but enough for us to recognise each other. I might have preferred, he said, a league of the forgiven, but the point is the same. The point is, if we're all sinners, as Christianity certainly teaches, no one gets to look down on anyone else. And if we are all freely forgiven, as Christianity certainly declares, no one has bragging rights over another. Trinity. Community. Thirdly, finally, and briefly, eternity. The final lines of the Apostles' Creed signal a crucial New Testament teaching. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. How does this relate to the Holy Spirit? Actually, in every way. According to Genesis 1, the passage read to us a moment ago, God's Spirit was there right at the beginning of creation, breathing life into things. That's why you get that weird reference to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters just before God animates things with the words, let there be light. And in our New Testament reading, it turns out that God's Spirit will do the same thing beyond the grave. That Romans passage says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit breathed life into creation at the beginning, and the Spirit will breathe life into those who believe at the climax of history in what the creed calls the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So, so let me put it like this. The Spirit's role now is to take ordinary people and fashion them into a loving community. The Spirit's role then is to take mortal flesh and animate it for eternity. There is no avoiding that Christianity teaches eternal life. That you can experience not just God's forgiveness now, not just human community now, but eternal life beyond the grave. Now, I don't mind admitting to you that I'm probably a little more death conscious than the average Mossman boy who moved all the way to Kalara. Normally, the Mossman boy who moved all the way to Kalara, you know, sort of on a good day, pretty cheery, doesn't really think about death or too many beautiful distractions that we've had in our lives and possibility of, um, you know, health and wealth and all of that. But in my case, I lost quite a few people uh, that were very close to me quite early in life. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned that I lost my father in a plane crash when I was nine. And then... At school, at Mossman High, I lost in year 10 uh, a a dear friend, Robbie, um, who died in the maths classroom in front of us all. Uh, Then my good buddy Simon was killed in a motorbike accident outside the Orpheum there at Cremorne. And I think about death a lot. I'm willing to admit that maybe I think about death 
more than is normal and healthy. Those of you who are perhaps counsellors, you know, may more want to put me through counselling. But my point is, however unhealthy my thoughts about death might be, uh, I think Australian culture is way more unhealthy in the way it avoids thinking about death. So many things in our culture are designed to stop us thinking about the most certain thing in life. We are weirded out by death. It's really quite confronting. I mean, as a, someone who's been a minister for many years, the funerals that I've run, it's astonishing to me how many people are not just upset at the death of a loved one, but are really kind of awkward about talking of death. And, and perhaps the, 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 the greatest um, symbol of this in our culture is it is now routine to have families say to me, um, oh, please make this a celebration of their life. They don't even want to call it a funeral. Let's make it a celebration. They would want it to be a celebration. I think what's going on there is a profound pathology in our culture that cannot face the reality of death and wants to even see a funeral as a symbol of life. So, however neurotic I might be, I'm way less neurotic than the average Australian. One of the privileges of my ministry, when I was minister at St Andrews Roseville, uh, was meeting this man, James Garbett. Magistrate of the Court of New South Wales. Now, maybe some of you know him. Hopefully not because you've been in his court. Uh, but I know there are lawyers plenty in this neck of the woods. But he turned up at St Andrews Roseville out of the blue at one early morning traditional church service because he'd just received a dramatic cancer diagnosis. And I noticed him and went immediately to speak to him after the service and he described his cancer diagnosis and, and said, you know, I hope you're not going to be cynical about that. You know, man gets cancer, turns up at church, having not gone. <laughs> um, and I said to him, I'm the last person to be cynical about that. But he said to me, you know, it's just dawned on me with this dramatic diagnosis that there are probably only two things that are important. My family, and if there's a God, God. And so began a delightful series of cups of tea I would have with James. He lived just around the corner from St Andrews Roseville. And I would go uh, in the afternoons and have a cup of tea with him. And we would talk only about intellectual things to begin with. Only about, you know, the, what, what's this doctrine of the Trinity? You know, what's this business about sin? And he wanted to drill down on the intellectual frame of it all. And, and one of the most fruitful conversations we had was about history. And he said to me one day... Your discipline of history is very similar to my discipline of the law because it's all about assessing testimony, isn't it? Working out what's good testimony and bad testimony and then making pretty serious decisions on the basis of testimony. And he said to me one day, it, it really is amazing to me how many profound decisions I've made in my court for other people based only on testimony. And he's exactly right. 
that that is how the New Testament history uh, fares. It is a robust history where you can compare testimony and weigh testimony. And I will never forget the day I went to his home and he said to me, I've been reading the Gospels and in particular what they say about the resurrection of Jesus. And there is no way, he said, this is made up. I've been judging testimony all my professional career and this is good testimony. And there was a pivot in our conversations at that point. He now wanted to know what it meant for our life and in particular what it meant for eternal life. And for the final weeks that he was able to remain in his flat, we talked all about what the resurrection means for his eternal life. And I can tell you, James faced death with a deep confidence that the spirit would breathe life into his mortal, mortal body beyond the grave. Now, he had loads of doubts, even toward the end. He, he, he doubted all sorts of things. He wished he had had more time to go down all sorts of rabbit holes to understand more philosophy and history. But he decided that the one most important thing actually was a true thing. Jesus Christ rose again and is the guarantee of his eternal life. I got to see James uh, just two or three days before he died. He was in Greenwich Hospital in a morphine stupor. And when I came into the room, I said, James, it's John. Do you want me to pray? And he shot his hand up through his sheets and, to take my hand. And I prayed some bumbling prayer. One of those prayers where you hardly know what to say in a moment like that, but you just, you just speak. And by the time I got to the Amen, he, he was back asleep through the effect of morphine. And three days later, he was gone. I believe more alive than any of us in this room. The family asked me to lead the funeral. Boy, it was something else. Standing room only in the little St Andrews. The legal fraternity of Sydney. And there was eulogy after eulogy talking about James's legal career. Barristers got up. Just a hot tip, by the way, five eulogies is too many. Just take it from a professional. Anyway, so they got up one after another, and they kept on saying words like this. James was a man of impeccable judgment. When he was in control of a case, you could trust that judgment, impeccable judgment. And I listened, and I'm, I'm sitting just at the front of the church. I've got to get up and preach in a second. And I just thought, well... The, I just have to tell them one thing, really. You've all said what impeccable judgment he had. Let me tell you about his final judgment of testimony. He came to believe that the resurrection could not have been made up, that this is good testimony, and he died clinging to that. And I believe entered into eternity.
Friends, uh, Christians have disagreed on loads of stuff. And some of that is shameful. But they do agree on all that stuff on the screen. The 83 words all Christians agree on. About God the Father who created all things, to whom every one of us owes life and breath, to whom we are all accountable. The history of Jesus, which happened in real time and space, not in the mythical realm, not in the land of legend, where he died and rose again for our amnesty. And the life of the Spirit. Those who come to know Christ will receive his Spirit. And the Spirit will breathe life into you now, forming you into a communion of love. And breathe life in eternity, where you will know eternal resurrection life. That is the Christian faith. Please consider it if you're someone who's standing at a distance from it. Please embrace it fully if you're someone who admits to being a Christian but has not really formed the convictions that have changed your life. And let's, as the people of God, those of us who are Christians, proclaim these truths, these shared truths, this mere Christianity that can change the world and grant us eternal life. So, Lord, please, will you give us all clarity? Clarity of mind, that we would understand these complex concepts. But more than that, Lord, a humility of heart to know ourselves before you, to admit our fault before you, to call out to you for the forgiveness of sins, that ultimately we might know the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, crucified, risen to life. Holly and Clem will now present the song, This I Believe, uh, which uh, uh, is a song based on the Apostles' Creed, encompassing all we believe and all that we've learnt over the past three weeks. During the song, I invite you to text through any questions for John uh, on the number on the front of your service sheet, uh, 0434-01-0428, This I Believe.
beautiful words and a great encouragement to us. Thank you, John, um, also for sharing this morning. It's uh, been an, an amazing series and one that's encouraged all of us. Um, do you mind if I get you to come up the front? I haven't, no one's texted in a question. Maybe you just answered everybody's question. Maybe uh, I could give some questions. You, maybe we'll ask them questions. No. <laughs> um, so um, I don't really know what to, to ask you apart from I'm just going to say a big thank you for... Um, or you've um, shared. I think people are probably processing. Um, there's a lot um, to take on board and a lot to think through. Mm-hmm. And um, it should be 12 sermons, really, shouldn't it? <laughs> it's been terrific. And uh, well, I'm hoping we'll get to have you back again. And uh, and we've really appreciated um, your time with. I do have something, but I'm going to give it to you at Kalara, so you don't have to hold on for that. Uh, uh, a gift, but thank you. Got a semi-automatic rifle? Well, I was looking for one, um, but couldn't find one anywhere. I went into Kmart and they said they didn't have any. 
sorry about that. <laughs> but no, we're really pleased um, that you could be be with us. Um, well, just as I guess as you go, for people who've come, we've had um, we've had guests here. We've got new people even here today. Just following up the series we've done. What 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 are the next steps you'd encourage people to, to take? Well, I think I said somewhere, sometime, um, either here or Kalara, that um, I'm a great believer in little steps in the right direction, not giant leaps of faith. People sometimes get nervous that actually what you're asking to do is turn off your brain and jump into the dark. And I don't think that the the New Testament teaches that anywhere. Little steps in the right direction. Um, Because that's how relationships form. Um, If you meet someone, you give a little of yourself to them and see what comes back. And if something comes back, you give a little more of yourself and something comes back and it's sort of a recursive thing and the relationship blossoms. And I do think... um, Engaging with the Christian faith is, is more like that than a statistical formula where you've got to cross every T and dot every I before you make one step. So if you think there might be a mind behind the universe, start shooting up prayers. If you think that God behind the universe might have something to do with Jesus Christ, read a gospel. Take a little step in the right direction and see what comes back because I think you will begin to see a lot come back. And perhaps the most practical way to do it is, I mean, I haven't read the details, but I know you're going to run a Christianity Explored course, which is a brilliant course out of the UK. Um, And I'd love to think, if you want to take a little step in the right direction, that course, Christianity Explored, is just a beautifully articulate, non-pushy way to crystallise the Christian faith and uh, come to your own uh, sense of conviction about it and, God willing, an experience of it, yeah. Thank you. We might um, just give our show our appreciation in, in the traditional way. Thank you very much, Sean.